Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Code Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Francisco Lorraine, the co-founder and CTO at Topsort. Francisco, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me, Peter. So I love that in addition to like the the engineering leadership experience you have in building and managing global teams that I'm sure we'll get into later, you have this really deep background in a very specific subset of of a problem domain in terms of auctions. And yet it, it seems like auctions are everywhere. So I'd love to like maybe take a little bit of time to dig into better understand auctions and the underlying theory and like, you know, how you engage with that as a software engineer. So maybe just to get some context, how did you first start working and, and like yeah. bringing together economic theory and software development? Yeah. So um, it, it really happened like a, as a chance. Uh, I was um, kind of like working on, I was doing engineering, uh, a director of engineering at Groupon. And um, we started having like a, a lot of, um, a lot of the teams we were building on the merchant team were, like essentially solving, trying to solve problems where you have to combine a little bit of economics to solve them with engineering. So, you know, that could be dynamic pricing, for example, like, you know, how do you figure out um, the demand curve for, um, you know, like a, like a, a group on like a, a coupon when you don't have the same group on all the time. So how, how do you like figure that out? Or also we had um this problem where we will have some merchants that will have available times, but then they didn't know, like we were selling a group on and you have to book them at a certain time and really kind of like thinking about how do you really squeeze like the best time that like makes them like, you know, um, similar to happy hours, right? Like, you know, you want to book a discount where you don't have so much like um, cap- when you have li- uh, a lot of capacity. So a lot of those are economic problems, uh, like problems that come from economic theory. Um, and, you know, by the 
you know, just the ability to work on them, like, you know, you start getting an understanding and you get, you start connecting with the academia about these problems because, you know, these are problems that like, you know, are not often that solved. Like you cannot like really find the solution on the internet and then you have to go talk to someone in MIT or someone in, you know, all these like cool universities. And so I it's like essentially started marrying a lot of economic theory with um, software, traditional software engineering or machine learning. And then I became friends with like some of these people in the academia. And it's the reason why, like, you know, out of sheer uh, coincidence, one of these like professors, uh, a, a, a friend of mine at Stanford, one day sent, who I collaborated before uh, around this dynamic pricing problem, one day sends me an email saying like, hey, like, you know, I've been studying and he's like a worldwide expert in auctions. Um, I've been studying this problem and I see that there is like a lot of problems on how people solve it and how engineers approach this problem, make it very complex. And um, with, I think that like a company can be built around that. And I said, mm, this is interesting. <laughs> and then we ended up like building the, the current company we are in. Um, so yeah, that's like how, how that was the genesis of, of like how I got into auctions. So what was the, what was it that, so from what I understand, you, you had a company that then got acquired by Groupon mm -hmm. and then while you were at Groupon, you were running the, the head of local engineering. Yeah. So we, we had a company that like, you know, um, we built like the first product of Groupon Rewards. It was called back then, back then we built some technology for, um, connecting like uh, and storing credit card data and connecting them to return purchases. And um, then we had a team that like, uh, you know, we were like a 10 at the beginning and um, we, out of that group on rewards product, we started saying, well, wait a minute, we think merchants should have a better way to showing their information. So we built that team. And then we said, wait a minute, there is a way in which like, Merchants should be able to build a group without having to talk to 10 people. So we build self-service. Uh, and then we said, we need user-generated content in the company. We build that team, et cetera. So like it started becoming like, you know, a bigger, bigger team. And we ended up like, you know, running all the local business for engineering. Uh, so yeah, that was, yeah, four, four years of like, you know, hard work. <laughs> now, when you started doing things like dynamic pricing and bringing in like economic and auction theory, did that impact the the hiring process you used or the kinds of engineers you were looking for? Yes. Did you find that there were some people who could build a list and detail pages, but they were not the right person to to implement uh, an auction engine? Yeah. So, for like essentially for the dynamic pricing problem, for example, you do need. Two, you needed two things on that engineer. One, uh, it was the ability to push through walls, like, you know, because just to explain the problem more, back then we did have, like, our orders came with the price and it was a static thing. So you needed to decouple the price from orders. Uh, and that is, like, if you think about, like, any company, any commerce, like, you know, the order service is, like, sacred. Like, you know, it's very hard to touch. If you touch it, like, you know, m bad things happen. So you need, like, not only to be able to be a good engineer, but you need to also talk to a lot of product managers and people who get impacted by those orders to kind of, like, make a change. So that's one thing. It's, like, ability to break through walls, I, I, I would say. And the other one was, like, you know, understanding of machine learning, like, uh, and, like, 
you don't need to be like an expert in AI, but you do need to have this ability to understand, okay, like, you know, there is like this thing called logistic regression or some like, you know, si simple models and, um, and like have that intuition in baked in your mind about like, you know, you have an output and you have these labels. How do I combine these labels to get into this solution? So yeah, that, that would be the types of people that we would hire for <laughs> dynamic pricing. Now, that's really interesting because it feels like that is pushing in two orthogonal directions. On the one hand, they needed to be a good communicator because the product managers, it's not just the facts, right? It's the way you negotiate and discuss and engage with them. So that's very much human skills. And then the ML is obviously the ability to be technically competent in the domain. How did you go about finding people who had wonderful communication skills, wrote software, and also understood logistic regression and had a bit of an ML background? Yeah, so I would say you grab what, like, so like the one about the basics and fundamentals, understanding machine learning, that's a hard to train. Like, you know, you can train a, if you have a really good engineer, you can always train them to do many things. But I think that in general, engineers value enormously their ability to improve in their communication skills uh, and their ability, like we all value, like, you know, they say that like, you know, if you're going to write, um, if you're going to write a book about, uh, you know, um, speaking in public is most probably because that was a very hard problem for you to, to have at <laughs> some point and you became an expert. So for engineers, like a lot of us are shy and like, you know, uh, you know, it, engineer <laughs> and 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 I think that like you know uh, one of the things that I think we've done you know I, I feel proud of is like you know making people realize that they have much more potential than you know in soft skills as engineers and that you know then you can learn how to communicate so I think a lot of it is training I, I think a lot of it is uh, training them and like you know shadowing them with meetings and like you know have them you know, throw them into the lions and like have those difficult conversations at the beginning with some help. But then like, you know, you can see that people see value in these things. And like, it's like when you're losing weight, you see value and then, you know, you say, <laughs> okay, I can do it. Um, so, yeah. So I'd love to dig into that kind of soft skills training a little bit. So uh, what you were describing was very specifically the mentoring approach is to, well, you know, we'll do it together and I'll do a little more of it. Then you do a little more of it and slowly I'll hand over the responsibility to you. Did you bring any more structure? Like, did you take third party courses? Did you get them to do role plays or anything like that? Or was it really just more kind of clean mentorship? I think, no, I, I, that's a really good point. I think that it's a combination between mentorship and tactics. So like, you know, let's say that you need to like talk to the COO of the company, right? Like, you know, and you, you know, that that's a meeting that has high stakes and, um, you know, with him thumbing up, like, you know, uh, you will get a lot of things done. We will, we will like go into tactics on that one. It's like, you know, okay, like this is what this person wants. Um, this is how he wins by this project. And these are the points that we're going to be touching. And if you think about it, it's very similar to a sprint planning. It's like, you know, okay, like here are the objective instead of like, you know, get the use, the user should do this, et cetera. You will say, okay, you get the COO to say yes to this or like, you know, to understand the pros and cons. Um, so I think a lot of like the work we do is like, you know, thinking about the problem is same as in engineering, breaking the problem apart. Um, and I think that like, you know, even in politics or, you know, in uh, these high level things, when you, you have to, 
you know, conversations that are a little bit more political, um, you can also solve the problem in many ways by, by, by thinking on the engineering aspect of it. Like, you know, what are like, and I think that's what a lot of product, product people do and like my executives do, but I do think that you can even build a blueprint, which is a engineering way of like, you know, thinking about the problem, I guess. That's great. And it's really interesting because to me, it speaks to this idea of like cognitive empathy, the ability to understand, not necessarily to empathize like they're sad, you feel sad, but more like, oh, I understand where this person's coming from, what their constraints are, what their objectives are. So how can we solve for that set of objectives and constraints? And then effectively, you're making it more of an engineering problem, then you just need to deliver that. Yes, but then there is a absolutely... But then, like, if you, if you think about cognition, the same problem applies to your own cognition. So, like, you know, we engineers think, and this is a great mistake, that if you know how to solve the problem, the entire problem is solved. And then you don't, you lose empathy, right? Like, you know, it's a, you know, we, we are in general, like, I, I, I think that, like, you know, we skew a little bit towards not, not having too much empathy. We could be very sympathetic, but empathy, putting yourself in the other shoes, it's a problem because, you know, you can turn arrogant. You can say, okay, like, you know, I know how to solve this problem. Uh, like, I'm just going to run the program. It will compile and everyone is going to say yes. And then, like, you know, <laughs> it never works in that way unless you only have engineers in a room. So I think a, a lot of the problem is controlling yourself, like, you know, in these situations and really understanding. And, and this is something that can be trained. It's like, you know, okay, like this person on this other side, has an ego and like, you know, uh, wants to get this done and um, doesn't this person, we should not threaten him or we should not make him embarrass him in public, even if our solution, and this is a super important engineering problem, even if our solution is the perfect one. So like the, maybe it's like the best solution, but then, you fail to understand that if the other person in the room has power to veto your solution, your solution still never works. So, you know, finding those trade-offs, I think like the resource decision of the problem should, should be like also considering what the other person has to say and how you control yourself of not showing up that like you might not know the, you might know the answer or things like that. I think a lot of it has to do with like, acknowledging the other person as an equal too, like, you know, and I think that's like another mistake that like sometimes we do in engineering is like, you know, on the other side, you have someone who understands a scope of the company and a way of seeing things very different than yours that creates a lot of value. And like, you know, how do you interact with that person, treat them as an equal and understand their agenda? Like those things are very important to, to like, yeah. But I think like it's interesting that you can actually be very analytical about the problem, even with your own self. Like, okay, like I need to control what can I say in this time, in these things or not. Absolutely. So were there things you looked for when you were hiring for engineers who, who needed to have that capacity to engage with other product managers and kind of to operate politically? Were there specific questions you asked, specific things you looked in their background? How did you know whether somebody would be a good fit or not for that kind of engineering role? I don't, I really, I mean, the most honest answer is that I don't really kind of like, um, 
way for those things when hiring an engineer, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but mostly, like, I mean, but but mostly, I think if if someone you, strikes you as someone direct, honest, and transparent on an interview, most likely that person is going to be able to, um, like, be able to be successful in these skills. Because I, I think that's the key. It's like, you know, it, it's really about, like, you know, knowing where your limits are and what the other person limits are and, like, treating them as equally. Like, the best way to do that is by, like, using honesty and transparency um, and being aware of that. I think self-awareness is a very important thing to, to find on these things. Were, were there any particular questions or ways you engaged with candidates to, to determine whether they were honest, transparent, self-aware? I think provocations in general are a, a way to kind of like um, like test for these in general. Like, you know, we, you have a candidate and you provoke them in certain way uh, and you see their reactions uh, that those things like someone sometimes tend to bring a person who might react in situations of stress. Uh, so like a provocation could be intellectual, it could be behavioral, like there are many ways, right? But that like brings the brings the real person sometimes in in those situations. It might not. Uh, it depends on the person, obviously. But um, but challenges like you know I, I, any type of challenge that it's even behavioral, intellectual, um, you know, a problem that you know it's extremely hard. Um, by the way, in that person answers that problem, you find out a lot about that person, right? Like you know, if you ask someone like you know, tell me, is NP different or equal than P and the person starts telling you that it's like different and gives you arguments. Well, you know that that person doesn't like, you know, might not be very transparent or truthful. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, j just like broadening it out to hiring in general, now at, um, at Topsoil, you've got engineers, you're, you're in Chile at least part of the time, mm -hmm. but you've got a fairly distributed engineering team. How, where is your team based and how did you pick or, either the people or the locations that you have? Yeah, we, we look in general, but like, I think that we do look for extraordinary, like individuals in engineering. We really try to always factor a lot, like their ability to solve problems and, um, and their ability to be curious about problems. It's not the same sometimes. Uh, so like, you know, a lot of our, you know, we're, we're, right now 30 engineers or something so like we're still in that stage where a lot of like our hiring has been through the network um you know like you have an engineer they feel that they're learning a lot and then they bring their friends uh, mm. but it, what has been fascinating is that like it's not only like one specific region so like you know you know me and my co-founder we had like you know we she used to work uh, in an events company and then they had like a bunch of um, really good engineers there, like who really liked working with her. She was like terrific product manager. Um, she you know, brought these people in and they brought people themselves. I had a lot of connections with people in Chile and like, you know, we started like kind of like hiring in that way. And then, for example, we, we had um, a... Like uh, we started working with some people in Pakistan and then they also like kind of brought like some like 
Turkey, same thing. Like you, you bring like when you realize that like some environment is really good and like people are growing and learning and learning how to code, you start bringing your friends. So that's where we are right now. It's like you know, it's it's yeah. Network. Now, how do you manage the the time zones between Chile, West Coast, and um, you know? Turkey and India, especially or Bangladesh, like that, that's substantial range of time zones. How do yeah. you, do you have overlap hours? Like, how do you think about yeah. that? When it's a lot of difference between time zones, it's not so much drama. The problem is the modulo 12, right? Like when you have like, you know, 12 hours difference is, is, is some drama. Um, but if it's 23 hours difference, then it's not so oh, much of a problem. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, the classic thing is that you try to put them in clusters, uh, trying to solve like something very specific and try to like overlap at sm- at most five hours between the teams. I think like, you know, in, in general for, um, the, the people who work directly with us, we always tell them like, you know, we would love to have like five hours overlap with the East Coast. Um, then like if it's, uh, teams that, are, that don't report directly to us, like, you know, we try that like, team to have a five hour, you know, kind of like span between them uh, and then give them like something that they can work autonomously and like, you know, very, very well scope and things like that. I think th- those things work well. And then also I think it's like letting that like cell of people grow, like, because then like, you know, there is like cultural ways in which they will work and, um, and, you know, whatnot time zones that like, you know, help there. And then do you, how do you meld or, or bring together the aspects of the different, because I mean, th- there are very different cultures in different parts of the world. How do you engage everyone in a way that there are a shared set of understandings, values, so that you can work together while still bringing your uniqueness? Yeah. I I think that like um, a lot of it has to do with, in my opinion, have you ever heard that thing that says sales is 80% on board, uh, post sales is 80% onboarding, employees are 80, like all of what you can give is like, so the onboarding, you need to be very kind of like direct and like, even before making a hire, we give a bunch of disclaimers. I literally say, okay, disclaimers, this is a startup. Like you work a lot on a startup, like, you know, um, or, or it startups are intense and like, you know, we, we like, you know, productivity is measured by like, you know, in part by working hard, you know, like it's things sometimes like, you know, we, we, we feel that we shouldn't say, I feel that if there is something out of your culture that you feel you should not say, you should say it very clearly and like, you know, give disclaimers because some, sometimes people don't want those things. And, um, you know, they're looking for, you know, uh, work-life balance, uh, m- many reasons, huh? Like, you know, and people are, have different, like, you know, things that they're seeking in life. But if you're going to a startup, like, there's certain things that you need to understand about, like, what it is to work on a startup. So a lot of it, like, you, so you said the culture and the onboarding, in my opinion. Um, and then they're like universal stuff, right? Like, you know, um, if you work hard, like our culture, we do work hard. Doesn't mean that we work a long amount of hours, but we, when we're on, we're on. Um, I think those are things that you want people to acknowledge and agree with you as sort of a promise. Uh, and then like you can essentially really build a fabric around like some universal human values that are respected. It, you know, tell me one country where like hard work is not valued, right? Like uh, um, maybe there are, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, things like that, or, or you know, that it's, 
yeah, that, that is not socially accepted, right? Like it could be that right. people don't value hard work, but they will not say. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's like using universal principles of like, you know, uh, certain things that everyone type, type of agrees, give them a disclaimer. And that's how you start building cultures, uh, uh, you know, that like can be, you know, common among certain aspects. That makes sense. And then do you um, try to foster connections between the teams, even, you know, where the, where the time zones are less aligned? Uh, yeah, I think that the other thing that, like, I mean, all these, like, tools like Slack and things like that, right? Um, I think that, so one, we do have, like, you know, coffees and, like, at ridiculous times, right? Like, you know, when it's dinner, there's, like, a coffee or things like that. <sighs> um so we do that uh, fairly regularly and we're trying to do it even more. But I would say there is also an interesting thing that happens with like the use of emojis and the use of like, you know, micro things in cultures that like, you know, bring people together and like create humor around things. I think we use that a lot. Like the way that we talk, we do have a way of talking. I always have like the scream emoji when like something happens. And instead of like making it a very serious thing, uh, where like, you know, you, you know, which could be serious, like, you know, you can use humor to like align people and get them to work on something. Um, and so like, you know, I don't know, like, I, I think like there are certain tools and I think like this is going to be like in five more years, this is going to be way more than, than we see right now. But, you know, you're touching a very interesting point, which is like, I do think that like, you know, we're seeing that 50% of like, you know, um, buildings are going to be y occupied and it's one of the things that like the pandemic uh, left with us, right? Like people are not returning to to the office so much. Um, but that also means that you still have a necessity to socialize and maybe like, I don't know if it has happened to you, but like, you know, a lot of my friends are telling me like, I'm not meeting with the same people I was meeting pre-pandemic. Um, yes, I keep my core family and my core friends, but like, you know, I sometimes... I don't care about like the FOMO of like going to a, uh, that I had before. So I do think that there is like a change in the way that we, um, that we socialize. And a lot of it has to do with workplace. Um, and like, so like, it's all about like, you know, how you, uh, you know, build that content to socialize with people in, in the workplace. Um, that, that like, it's something that it's going to be a challenge for, for, for organizations. Like, what is that? Like, how do you make, how do you create social bonds? And do those social bonds need to be geographical? Is there enough of a like world culture or engineering culture that like you can, you can use to connect people? And I think like thinking about that problem is a very important problem for every leader, really. Like, you know, what is that like unites people around this company? Is it like, you know, this mission that we have or, or, is this like, you know, desire to connect with other engineers, et cetera, right? Like, yeah. Well, I feel like there's a whole set of issues around that too. Like as we move to a world where um, more and more people are doing remote or, or at least hybrid, I, the, 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 the thing I'm still trying to get my head around is what you do for the new engineers just coming straight out of college. Because the number of stories I've heard where people are like, well, you know, my first job out of college, there was this one engineer down the hall and I could just go knock on their door and they would tell me these things. And that was how I really got like a, a deep, technical understanding of my craft and it feels so much harder to do that now like I mean are, are there any things that you do for like mentorship or support within the team given that you can't walk down the hallway anymore 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I think this might be a hidden variable that I don't understand about the cultures that where I've been working, but for some reason, and I don't understand this very well, every like team that that I've been involved, they're extremely collaborative. And but I I swear that like this doesn't I, I don't I'm not doing this on purpose at all. And I I if you ask me, am I that collaborative? Like, I don't know, you know? So like mm-hmm. So I don't understand why, but but like you know, when you, when you have very collaborative cultures, this this alleviates the problem. Um, but I would say that we still scratch our heads with this problem, especially with very junior people. And the reason is that like you might have a guy who it's a genius in algorithms and solves all your problems on the interview, but then really the problem is the guy gets frustrated at like one test. Like he doesn't like, you know, let's say like, you know, there's a test that is not passing. I'm pretty sure that everyone listening to the podcast has been there and the test doesn't pass, doesn't pass. This person is extremely smart, you know, so like, you know, probably never had challenges that like were very complicated to them. Uh, They always could solve it with the mind. And so they get frustrated and they either, you know, kind of like stop working or they remove the test, which is, I don't know which one is worse than the other, right? (laughs) And, and, and I think the point that I'm making is that like part of like our job in, in software engineering, of course, a lot of it has to do with solving problems, but a lot of it has to do with grit on like, you know, getting through the code and making things work. And how do you solve that problem? One is again, like, as we said before, like, you know, we shadow the person, you pair program, um, you go through the thing and like, you, you know, you, you, you go through stack overflow with them, whatever it is. Uh, but it's not the same as like having someone live. So how do you solve this problem? Ideas we've had, we've rent like, you know, kind of like um, Airbnb for a week uh, where we put a lot of people together and like, you know, we do have office hours, but we try to make ourselves available. Um, and I encourage people like, and, and if I see some of these junior guys, super smart, but that, you know, they they don't want to learn how to do an API or things like that is is we give them extra um, extra resources. Like, you know, either the manager spends more time, but it, this is a challenge. This is a challenge. I'm pretty sure there's going to be companies that are, are going to come up from this same problem. Like, how do you train very junior engineers? There's nothing better than, like, you know, just knocking the door or, like, you know, moving your chair and asking a question. And it's like, I mean, one person I was speaking with was was exploring the idea of just simply having office hour blocks for senior engineers and say, hey, we want you to take 90 minutes and just drop into a Zoom room. You can keep on doing whatever you're doing, but anybody drops in, your job for those 90 minutes a day is to help them to solve their problems rather than for you to ship the maximum code. Yeah. And then the problem there, though, is like, you know, how do you solve for the shyness of the engineer? So, um, you know, the senior engineer can be available, like they block their time. Uh, but then if the junior engineer comes and asks a question and sees that this guy's busy, you know, like yeah. it, it's, a, it's a harder problem. It's like really, like they need to really understand, like engineers <laughs> need to compile, right? Like they need to really understand <laughs> why using this, like, you know, it's, I think if you frame it as technical depth, like they might understand, it's like, you know, how do you, make your company more successful? How do you get that senior engineer to be believing their leadership? How that expresses in, in career development? How is this measured in performance? 
um, things like that, I think, and, and, and really kind of like, because in the end of the day, in this conversation, the senior engineer can signal that they're not interested in helping and then the entire design breaks apart. So I think you need to think about that problem. But certainly, like, we do office hours. Um, we have a meeting that, like, we love it. I always call it the my favorite meeting in the in the week, which has a very boring name. It's called the weekly incidents meeting. And it's really like a meeting that controls for all the exceptions in the company. So like, you know, I try to have a very regular schedule of meetings and I try not to have ad hoc meetings in general. You always have ad hoc meetings. You try to avoid them. But there is like the meeting that consolidates all the ad hoc meetings, which is this <laughs> weekly incident meetings. And we do talk a lot about like, you know, what happened, what broke up, like, you know, especially kind of like servers crashing and things like that. Um, and like, you know, that's a, a place where a lot of junior people also can learn from systems. They can learn about like software engineering. Um, and, you know, some of them get very excited about these things. So, you know, yeah, that's what we do. That, that is great. So Francisco, unfortunately we're out of time, but thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and experiences. Well, uh, this was a super fun conversation, Peter. 